Welcome back to the most interesting person you know. My name is Natalie Chandra and I'm probably not the most interesting person you know, but I am really interested in a whole bunch of things. Each season we focus on a new topic and this season we're focusing on nuclear weapons. At the beginning of each season I interview someone that I know who is really interesting and at the end of that interview I ask them who is the most interesting person they know. This episode is part two with Brandon Thomas Noon. Last episode, we talked about strategies left over from the Cold War, the changing nuclear dyad, and Australia's tenuous position within the Pacific. It was a really good first half, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I'd really encourage you to go back. But we are back with Brendan to talk about sea-based nuclear strategies and his favorite movies on state nuclear action. I'm Natalie Chandra, and this is the most interesting person you know. But I guess kind of just going back to the basics, so what are the sort of sea-based nuclear powers and what are the infrastructures that we're looking at? And what's the difference between like the traditional missiles that we've seen before? Yeah, so this is really cool. So basically during the Cold War, there was this entire like underwater um, war, Cold War thing that happened over years and years and years. And um, there's some work out there on it, but someone reason write a really cool book on it. But yeah, it's awesome. So basically, there was this sort of back and forth technology-wise between the Soviet Union, United States, and NATO about um, anti-submarine warfare and sonar and stuff like this. And this became important because as um, their technological ability progressed, they looked for second strike capability. The second strike concept is part of the mutually assured destruction theory, or MAD. Second strike is a country's ability to retaliate to a nuclear attack. The concept goes that country A will be less likely to attack country B if B has nuclear weapons that cannot be seen or found, perhaps hidden in the ocean on submarines. Therefore B has second strike power and country A is less likely to attack. So the submarines, ballistic missiles on submarines and nukes on submarines kind of provide this stability in a weird kind of messed up way um, where you and I can't find our sub- each other's submarines, so we can never be guaranteed of not being attacked after I f- attack you. It's kind of maybe a complicated way of saying it. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a hidden weapon. It's like a hidden weapon, right? Yeah. Exactly. So submarines were the perfect thing because water is really hard to find things in. Oh, yeah. Um, because, Absolutely. Yeah, so like, it sort of makes sense. So if I have a submarine underwater um, that's constantly moving around and mm-hmm. constantly has these long-range nuclear weapons on it, it's very difficult to like find the submarine and then attack it and kill it and then kill 12 of them or 30 of them or yeah. however many you have before you sort of can attack me and take me out. So they basically, in the Cold War, they started to put these nukes on subs and started to float them around. But then that created this whole sort of competition amongst like uh, the Soviet Union US about like sonars and improving their sonars and then tracking where the submarine bases were. Um, and then trying to figure out and hunt those subs. And so you'd have, they're called SSBNs, or it's basically nuclear submarines with ballistic missiles on them. And then they have these attack subs. They'd be trailing each other. But the thing is that also created these things called strategic anti-submarine warfare. And this is sort of getting into it a bit, but basically you were able to build these long networks of cables under the water. They did this in Greenland and they did this off Iceland for the Soviet submarines would kind of cruise around. An example of the Cold War tactics occurring under the sea was in 1962. 
On October 27, 1962, near America's blockade line around Cuba, American destroyer USS Beale began dropping non-lethal depth charges on the nuclear-armed Soviet submarine B-59. Meant to be warning shots to force the Soviet submarine to surface, the captain of the Soviet submarine mistook them as live explosives and, thinking it was the call for World War III, ordered the submarine to load and shoot their nuclear-tipped tornado. The attack was not launched as the second-in-command reduced to consent. The submarine then surfaced to receive new orders from Moscow. Many years later, when the reports were released, it was realised how close the Cold War had gotten to becoming World War III. And you put big sonar dishes or acoustic dishes kind of down below the water and then connect them to land. You're basically, as a sub passes by, these big nets, sonar nets would track oh, it. Uh -huh, yeah. So you, this all this information would go back to the US and there'd be guys on computers and they'd be able to like see if something crossed one of those nets. And then they, that information would go out to their ships on the ocean and planes and stuff and then they would track those submarines. So if you're able to create like a geographical space where you're able to see everything in it, you can both hunt submarines easier in there, but you can also protect your own submarines easier in there. So in China, sorry, in the South China Sea, one of the theories is that the Chinese are trying to replicate this. Chinese have built, um, they've had an SSBN, one of them for a long time, and they mm -hmm. never used it and never went out to ocean, but they've built a new class of them, which are still quite noisy. But with those, you want them to hide kind of deep in the water and one area is the South China Sea where if you're able to kind of build island with anti-aircraft guns and like you know missiles and stuff you can keep everyone else away or at least threaten everyone else away from yeah. this area and then your nuclear subs can cruise down there safe. The South China Sea is one of the most important geopolitical conflicts of the 21st century. One of the defining features of China's forward action in this area has been the installation of radars on multiple reefs. These include Kuroton Reef, Fiery Cross Reef, Gavin Reef, Hughes Reef, Johnson Reef, Mischief Reef, and Subi Reef. According to the CSIS's Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative, these installations have multiple uses, including facilitating search and rescue and air operations in the area, but they also allow China to increase their surveillance, with better tracking of vessels and military assets within the area, extending their control. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, so you create like a geographical yeah. area where it's just like a pen, and you'll put your subs in there, and mm -hmm. then the US can't, and we'll have a lot of difficulty finding them. But you're also able to create these big sonar nets, right, underneath the water, that, you know, as if US subs go in there, you can tell and you can warn your own subs and it's this big game of like cat and mouse. So that's one of the theories why the Chinese are kind of interested in building all these islands in the South China Sea is to protect their nuclear submarines. Which is interesting because mm -hmm. yeah like I, as like you've just drawn the parallel it's like a direct lesson that we've drawn from the Cold War which is quite conveniently my next question thanks for that. So like a lot of the theory that surrounds nuclear missiles are like deterrence and mutual issue destruction which we've already talked about as the technology has increased and the sea capabilities. Are there the very clear Cold War lessons we're drawing from there? Yeah like it's funny like the Cold War comparisons are starting to you know and I think I've, I wrote this thing the other day where I was trying to figure out why this new era of like arms racing is different from the Cold War. In periods of the Cold War we were building a lot of warheads, so we're building a lot of nuclear weapons. Now it's not a massive increase necessarily in the amount of nuclear warheads countries yeah. have, 
like even the latest U.S. nuclear policy review, which a lot of people have claimed is like um, far more aggressive than a bottle. It is not aggressive. It's far more um, elevating the role of nuclear weapon. It's not so much the number of warheads, it's the actual capabilities. Yeah. And this all goes to like what are called escalation ladders. So this is like Herman Kahn basically created this thing in the 60s. That was like a big ladder, they call it a ladder, it's a list basically of steps. And the idea was is that um, each of these steps would be each country who were in the kind of a conflict would interpret each of these like moves up the ladder as an escalation. And it can involve everything from like launching your bombers and having them fly around to like actually launching a small type of nuclear warhead to like as a warning shot or to demonstrate your seriousness. So the idea for these guys who wrote the NPR is that the US doesn't have enough capabilities to fill out the entire ladder. If you go from like launching your bomber to like full out nuclear war, that would be, you know, you don't have enough options to kind of deter your adversary. And they think we need to like fill that out now. That's pretty debatable. So you see this sort of jog, you know, where, yeah. right? Like, I think the quote was, if the Cold War was one long arms race, the modern era could be accurately described as an arms jog. Yeah, I love that line. That yeah. Was so great. I was trying to figure out this way of being like, it's, it's we're, we're trying to like develop new creative, creative is the wrong word, like new, new capabilities rather than yeah. actual building a ton of nuclear weapon. It's building new missiles, building new, um, so there's also like things like hypersonic missiles, which are 10 years away, but like the technology's here. You basically launch a missile really far up into the atmosphere, and then it nosedives down with a ramjet, which is this new type engine, and it glides. So it can kind of glide at high speeds, and it kind of, kind of circle down and like pinpoint strike, but it travels at like Mach 5 or, or above. So ballistic like missile defenses that are designed to shoot down missiles actually can't hit it. So there's all sorts of new types of technologies and capabilities that are being developed um, to try and you know augment nuclear arsenals yeah. now. So really just using innovation rather than like brute force. Yeah, like, yeah, and then like in modernizing arsenals where, you know, Russia and China and the US have these old nuclear arsenals that were all sort of upgraded more or less starting in the 70s and like finished in the 90s. Um, and now that's kind of 20, 30 years later and those, those capabilities that were built then are now starting to age. And so they're using that as sort of an excuse to um, not build more nukes but to modernize what they have, to do new things, I think and make them more efficient and more capable. And so it's, yeah, it's this weird joke. Like they're not, they're not building in tons more missiles. They're just yeah. making what the missiles they already have a lot better. And that's its own form of arms race. Because the NPT signed in the 70s, that deal is aging. The Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, NPT, was signed in March 1970 and was the commitment of the five nuclear states to pursue general and complete disarmament, and for non-nuclear states to forego developing or acquiring nuclear weapons. There have been no new treaties that have addressed the changing landscape and technologies to nuclear weapons until July of last year, 2017. Yeah, our generation doesn't really, I don't think really, um, fully appreciates how many nukes there are. I really, yeah, pretty strong believer of that. Yeah, so I guess that leads us to the final theme of this, which uh, traveling from Asia to the sea capabilities to kind of popular culture and what you've said is that like my generation, I think like our, ge our generation? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, yeah. That's and I say our generation. And I'm old. <laughs> 
I guess like our generation. We'll stretch it. We'll stretch it. Yeah, we'll yeah. say our generation. Give me, give me a break. Yeah. You you kind of talked about how young people have never really been exposed, like even fictionally. I think that's a really important kind of aspect to knowledge and kind of understanding mm. to the danger of nuclear weapons. So, what do you think the effect of this is? What do you think is the ultimate purpose in like pop culture and nuclear weapon awareness? So, you know, I'm a movie geek and a nerd, obviously, because I you know, talk about all this stuff. But oh, basically, it's great. <laughs> it's great. But basically, um, uh, our, like, movies since, like, basically 2001, and even, even the 90s, were always focused on um, representing nukes as, like, a one-off actor. You know, I always think of, like, The Dark Knight or, like, even, uh, there's this movie with, like, George Clooney and Nicole Kidman called The Peacekeeper, which is, like, a late 90s movie like that representation that it wasn't states it was always like an individual with with like a you know a backpack and that kind of stuff it was gonna like do a terrorist attack that's how we've seen nukes used um in pop culture probably for the last like 20 years where in the cold war it was always like you know not always but there was a lot of movies um and like films made that were like full-on state on state conflict because that was the era in which they were living but that has actually done us a bit of a disservice because that's actually that never really went away the geopolitical threat went away state on state systems that like you know there are planes every day that launch and like maintain states nuclear arsenals and command and control and there's people every day like manning submarines and missile tubes all over the world still with this apparatus from the cold war is still still to this day in a way so I think that's done our just generation a little bit of a disservice. I mean, not disservice. That's probably a strong word, but like, because you know, terrorist threats are real. But like, you know, we're gonna have to start kind of reconciling pop culture wise with the idea of like disseminating this knowledge. Um, you know, sorry everybody, but like, we never really solved this problem, and we still live with it, and we're gonna have to deal with it again, um, which sucks. Because I don't want to like live through another cold war. No. It sounds like it's horrible, <laughs> and especially if you like, yeah, know yeah. anything about nukes, you don't want to like, yeah. No. It gets very depressing. So, um, but it's also important because there needs to be kind of more awareness amongst people about these capabilities that are out there. It's surprising to me how many times you know I'll do radio or like do talk to people, and they go, "Oh, does Australia have nukes?" Like the kind of level of knowledge about it is really, really low. Australia doesn't have any nuclear weapons, however there has been a base for America's tracking of ballistic missiles and intelligence in Pine Gap. Located about 20 kilometers from Alice Springs, conspiracy theorists believe that the base is used to research alien technology or to build an underground city should the world be destroyed. In 2013, with the Snowden leaks, Pine Gap was revealed to be a surveillance facility of paramount importance to the US. While there is set to be a Netflix series on Pine Gap to be filmed this year, very little is known about the activities at Pine Gap. Is there one kind of movie that would be like your ultimate watching thing or like the ultimate, or what would you like to see made another George Clooney? So like, yeah, no, yeah, I love George Clooney. No, The Sum of All Fears is like the only movie recently made about about state on state, mm-hmm. state on state escalation. It was like, so that started Ben Affleck and it was actually based on like a, um, like a 1990s book that kind of represented the idea that countries can go to war with nuclear weapons and escalation and then also uh, Crimson Tide you should watch that okay. this is getting pretty nerdy but like has <laughs> Denzel Washington and um, oh, another actor anyway but it's all about actually it really applicable to our conversation today which is like 
a guy on a submarine and communications off on the submarine and it's on the US submarine and it's about like the struggle over whether to launch their nukes or not when the communications cut, which is stuff okay. that I've done before, like looked at before about countries like India and China building these new submarines, which are mm-hmm. actually some of the most complicated military machines that a country can build and having political control over them because they're out in the ocean and mm-hmm. they only kind of surface to talk to their command mm-hmm. every once in a while because being able to surface and communicate the people tracking them can kind of watch them and see where they are so they have to be maintained really silent so what about the idea that like they're cut off from communication they don't know what's going on in the world and then having to make the decision over using their nukes or not in that second strike stuff Crimson Tide talks about that it's pretty cool definitely check it out okay well thank you so much for the chat I really enjoyed it Um, it was really informative and Great, which is really great. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Anne. Yeah. Um, so kind of the concept of the podcast is is that um, I talk to one of the most interesting people I know, and then they introduce me to the most interesting person that they know. So in this case, it was David Smith to you. So who's the most interesting person you know, Brandon? Yeah, uh, Tim Wright, who's the Asia-Pacific director of ICANN. He's a really interesting guy. Cool dude. Amazing. Thank you so much again for your time, Brandon. Thanks, Anne. Thanks so much for listening. I'm incredibly excited for the next episode where we will be talking to a Nobel Peace Prize winner. I hope you're looking forward to hearing me geek out. Until then, like last episode, there will be a reading list detailing the topics we covered this episode. You can access that on the Instagram page at Natalie or our Facebook page, ChatterlyWithNatalie. I'm Natalie Chandra, and this has been The Most Interesting Person You Know.